Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Friday afternoon. Thanks for being with us. A lot of ground to cover still over the course of this hour. But off the top in this hour, an important question. It's a time for Canada to embrace the principle of allowing compensation, allowing payment for plasma donations. Story this week from the Globe and Mail, Canadian Blood Services, says it may for the first time work with private companies that pay people in Canada for their blood plasma as the organization looks for ways of overcoming a dearth of unpaid donations. Spokesperson for CBS said the organization now has few options left to secure an adequate domestic supply of the protein-rich liquid, which is found in blood. Plasma is used for life-saving transfusions and is a key ingredient in some medications. Now, this has been met with some, shall we say, over-the-top reactions. Like, for example, from NDP health critic Don Davies calling on the government to block this. Quote, the move will put lives at risk and prioritize profits of big pharma over the well-being of patients who depend on blood plasma donations. Here's the thing, folks. Right now, donations from Canadians represents about 15% of the plasma that is used in Canada. The rest, for the most part, comes from the United States. So, you know, getting on, on, the, um, on the high horse here about paying donors in a way is kind of a moot point because the plasma used in Canada is coming from paid donors. They just happen to be Americans. Well, someone who has written extensively uh, about this issue, including a study from 2020 called Bloody Well Pay Them, the case for voluntary remunerated plasma collections. Very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Peter Jaworski, a Canadian, teaches business, eth- uh, business ethics at Georgetown University, as mentioned, written extensively on this issue. Peter, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Yes, good to be back with you, Rob. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, and we've talked about this debate before. We can get into some of these issues, but let's talk about this announcement from Canadian Blood Services. This seems pretty significant. What do you make of it, first of all? Well, we don't know the details yet, but let me just say that I'm optimistic and I'm positive about the announcement from Canadian Blood Services. There's a couple of different directions that the details might go. One is we might see Canada follow the same kind of model that was introduced in Egypt last year. In Egypt, the Egyptian government controls 51% of what will be the 20 new plasma collection centers in that country. And then Griffles, which is a Spanish company, they will own 49%. So that's one possibility. In that case, Canadian Blood Services would own 51%. Griffles would own 49%. The other possibility is that Griffles would remain a private company, but they would act as an agent on behalf of Canadian Blood Services. So as you might be aware, the Voluntary Blood Donations Act, which is the law that makes it illegal for commercial companies to use compensation to collect plasma Mm -hmm. in the provinces of Ontario and British Columbia, um, that exempts Canadian Blood Services as well as its agents. And so it's possible that Griffles would collect in Ontario and British Columbia, but would function as an agent at the behest of and fully under the control of Canadian blood services. So those are the options I'm optimistic and I'm positive about either one of those. Right. And and Griffles, are they currently active at all in Canada? Oh, boy. So Canadian blood services has had a three-decade-long relationship with Griffles. Griffles fractionates the plasma that Canadian Blood Services collects. Okay. So when Canadian Blood Services collects whole blood, the plasma that they get, that goes to Griffles. Griffles has also purchased the Prometic Plasma Resources Center in Winnipeg, 
That's a PACE, a plasma center that has operated in Winnipeg since 1984. And they also purchased the Green Cross facility in Montreal. And the plan, I think, is for them to fractionate Canadian plasma uh, domestically in Montreal. They do that now in North Carolina and in, uh, and in Spain and Barcelona. In terms of why Canadian Blood Services is considering this at this point, and, and I think it's it's been noted many times that there's no way to plasma self-sufficiency without compensation. That That's just the reality that we see when we look globally. Why do you think CBS is now at the point here where they're, they're starting to reconsider this? Uh, there's a couple of reasons for it. First, let me just emphasize what you've just said. You are exactly right. There is not a country in the world, not one jurisdiction, not anywhere that is fully self-sufficient in plasma collection unless it pays donors. And all of the countries that permit commercial compensated plasma donations, all of them, without exception, are self-sufficient. That's Germany, that's Austria, that's Hungary, that's the Czech Republic, uh, and of course, it's the United States. Why is CBS considering it now? CBS has tried for so many years to collect more plasma, and they have also requested a lot of money from the provincial governments to open more plasma collection centers. So far, we have never been self-sufficient, not ever. We've been more than 80% dependent on plasma collected in the United States since at least 2016. In 2015, we were 79% dependent on the United States, so that's just 1% off of uh, 80%. The provincial governments have not uh, granted the request. CBS was asking for $855 million. I actually don't know if listeners understand exactly what sorts of volumes we're talking about here. Canada needed 1.8 million liters of plasma in 2019. Today, we need approximately 2 million liters. That's more than 2 million donations. Across all of Canada, including uh, all donations of blood or plasma, together, we do about 800,000 donations per year. So this represents a more than doubling of the current donation. Plus, of course, we need to maintain the 800,000 donations. What is being asked for is so much. And the thought that Canada will be the first and only country to somehow manage to triple the amount of donations, we will need more than a tripling. We'll need like a four or five uh, time multiplier. I just don't see that as realistic. And I think Canadian Blood Services has come to the realization that this is impossible, right? We would need a hundred plasma collection centers costing provincial governments approximately, well, more than $2 billion. I just they're not going to do it. It's too expensive. And why spend that money when a commercial company, it, it'll cost us less than half price to do it the way that Canadian Blood Services looks like they want to do it. So there's a couple of arguments that critics have trotted out. One is the idea that, that it's somehow unsafe to, to allow commercial companies to, to compensate donors, which would imply then that we would cut off all imports from the United States, which would be a disaster, obviously. But there's also the other question, which is maybe worth uh, addressing, about whether this would impact volunteer blood donations. What about that side of it? Okay, so let's begin with the safety issue, because you quoted at the top Don Davies uh, saying that it will put lives at risk. That is not just wrong, it's irresponsible. Uh, 
Dr. Graham Schur, who's the CEO of Canadian Blood Services, he has repeatedly said that there is no safety difference between therapies made with compensated or uncompensated plasma. We're not talking about transfusions. We're talking about using plasma to manufacture plasma protein therapies. There is no safety difference. Around the world, the United States provides 60 to 70% of the starting plasma for all of the therapies for the entire world. None of these countries would import these therapies if there was any question about the safety of these therapies. There is no question. By the way, every patient organization in Canada is in favor of compensated plasma donations, and none of them would be if they thought that the people that they represent might be in danger. So I just wanted to emphasize how irresponsible and how outraged I was that Don Davies would say that. And it also implies that there is something the matter with Canadian plasma that isn't the matter with American plasma, because we do source 80% of our therapies from the United States. The only difference between uh, doing what we do now and the Canadian Blood Services approach would be to move one of those companies into Canada under the auspices of Canadian Blood Services. So that implies, all you can infer, is that what Don Davies means is that there's something wrong with paid Canadian plasma that, that there isn't with paid American plasma. Okay, um, your second question about the impact of compensated plasma donations on non-compensated blood and plasma donations. Let me say this. I've conducted a study both in Canada as well as in the United States. It's available up on SSRN and it is in the midst of peer review at the moment. It will be published soon. It demonstrates that there has been no impact on non-compensated donations in Saskatoon, in Moncton, uh, and in Winnipeg, where the, uh, where the paid plasma centers operated when I was doing the study. Um, in fact, there was a small positive impact on blood donations in those jurisdictions compared to the rest of Canada. We saw the same thing in the United States. There was no negative impact. There was a, a, a smaller but nevertheless positive impact. And, and this is compatible with what you see all over the world. The Czech Republic uh, saw the introduction of compensated plasma opportunities back in 2008, and both non-compensated blood and plasma donations went up too. Now, trying to explain why that is, here, here's a good way to try to explain it. For your listeners right now who are uh, blood donors and plasma donors, and by the way, thank you for doing that. I want to encourage people to keep doing that. Um, would you consider switching to a paid plasma center? Everyone who has ever asked me this question, I ask them, I say, well, okay, fine. Uh, is that what you would do? Like if you had the opportunity to get a few dollars for your plasma donations, would you do that? Or would you continue to donate at Canadian Blood Services? So far, everyone has told me that they would continue to donate at Canadian Blood Services. That tells me that these uh, two different models attract two different kinds of people to donate. Yeah. Let me ask this question that's in your wheelhouse, and it's much more subjective. Uh, the question of whether it's ethical to, to pay people for their, their plasma, their blood plasma, how do you come at that question? Well, uh, so of course this is what I work on. As you know, I'm an ethicist. I've published on this uh, quite a bit. Let me begin at the beginning and say the following. Look, the primary purpose of a system of plasma collection is to collect enough plasma to meet the needs of patients. That's the primary mission and purpose. It is not to give us an opportunity to express our altruism. 
So when people object on the grounds of like, well, actually, people should donate out of the kindness of their heart, not out of a regard for their wallet, that may or may not that may or may not be true, but that's irrelevant because that's not the moral point of collecting plasma in the first place. That's how I deal with the question of altruism. There are other questions like exploitation. It is true that in the United States, now I, uh, I donate plasma in the United States. I get paid for it, right? Uh, I, I am in general an exception because I, you know, I make a good income at Georgetown University. Many people do sell their plasma who are not as wealthy as other people. So you might wonder, is this exploitative? Right. I don't think so. And, and here's why not. One, you get paid between 50 to $75 for an hour and a half. A plasma donation is not a big deal. Not a big deal. That's a lot of money that you're receiving. You receive 20 to 30% of the revenue per liter of plasma. So you are not being taken advantage of by the companies that receive 0 to 5% in profit per liter of plasma. So that, that to me is a fair deal. The other question to ask is, what do people who would sell their plasma in Canada right now, what do they do since they don't have that option? It's not as though making paid plasma illegal puts money in anybody's pocket, right? So we have to ask people who are poor, is this an option that you would prefer to all of the other things that you might do to help make ends meet? And overwhelmingly, the people I speak to, they say this is great. I'm on Twitter all the time. I retweet people who keep talking about like, wow, I can't believe I watch Netflix, I donate some plasma, and I make 100 bucks. This is great. It's a win-win-win. That's what people say about it. So I don't understand, you know, the people who say this, did it, have they bothered to ask people who are down on their luck or who don't make a lot of money? Have they asked them whether or not they, you know, are they supposed to be grateful that people like Bloodwatch and the NDP and others are saying, well, you know, you have very few opportunities. We're going to make sure that you don't have this additional opportunity to help make ends meet. I don't, I don't see anybody being grateful that way. So I don't see it as exploitative at all. Very interesting. We'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, eagerly await uh, your forthcoming paper. In the meantime, we mentioned your study from uh, 2020. It's up at the Adam Smith Institute website, adamsmith.org. Peter Jaworski, thank you so much for the insight on all of this. Really appreciate making some time for us here today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Rob. Always a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Look forward to chatting again. All the best. Uh, Peter Jaworski uh, teaches business ethics at Georgetown University. As mentioned, has written extensively on the issue of compensating plasma donors. All right, welcome back. Our final half hour here this afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you as we head into the weekend on this Friday afternoon. We'll get to more of your phone calls, 403-974-8255-780-496-0063. August 15th represents uh, one year since the Taliban regained, seized power in Afghanistan amid the uh, American withdrawal. And it was a very chaotic time, I think, as we all recall. And a lot of questions about whether Canada was doing enough uh, to get people to safety. There were a lot of Afghans who were in a very grave danger uh, that they were going to be targeted for retribution by the Taliban uh, for having previously helped or worked with Canadian forces in Afghanistan. And certainly I think there was a lot of very fair criticism that you know the government was slow to react and that, that we didn't do as much as we could have. I think the other criticism for Canada and other Western nations is how soon we just moved on, or how quickly we just moved on. And maybe that falls to all of us. 
was something we talked a lot about at the time. It was a very big issue. Certainly, you might recall that coincided with the start of the federal election campaign. Uh, but we all collectively maybe seem to have moved on. And what have been the consequences of that? Have we turned our back on, have we uh, abandoned Afghanistan and left behind those uh, who are in, in some serious peril? Well, joining us to talk about uh, the situation one year later and, and that question of uh, whether we've irresponsibly uh, turned our back on people in Afghanistan. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Laura Oates is executive director of the group Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. Laura, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, from your perspective, as someone who obviously follows all of this very closely, works with uh, people in, and women in particular in Afghanistan, uh, is it fair to say that we've moved on, we've we've forgotten, we've we've abandoned them? Yeah, it really looks like that. Uh, I mean, certainly there's a community of people in Canada who remain very, very concerned uh, of the issue because they have connections to Afghans. They worked with Afghans either through military or uh, in a civilian role as, as aid workers. There's, there's all of these connections that were built over the past 20 years when Canada had an engagement with Afghanistan. Um, but it does definitely feel like the public at large and certainly the politicians have moved on and don't really want to deal with this and don't have any answers. And that it kind of just settled into a passive acceptance of the situation as if, you know, nothing can be done. It's distasteful, this, this regime that's in power, we won't recognize it, but neither will we try to actively oppose it or um, really concretely help people who have been left behind. Um, and I find that just galling because this is, in, in the words of Human Rights Watch, you know, the worst human rights crisis in the world today. And we're effectively doing very little. So how are things different or worse today in Afghanistan than they were a year ago in, in that chaotic period of August 2021? Uh, they are monumentally worse. Um, you know, firstly, on the front of just the economic situation in the country, as as always happens in war, the first people to flee are the very people you need to run a country, the educated classes, the professionals. And, um, you know, I was reading a couple of days ago about um, people can't get treatment in, in hospitals in Afghanistan because, you know, there's few doctors left, especially women with the Taliban imposing the rule that women have to be treated by women medical personnel. But those people have, have all fled. And so, that's literally starting to lead to situations of, you know, people dying for not being able to access medical care. So, you know, you, you have the, the, the kind of breakdown of society as, as so many people left and the economy in free fall and just getting worse day by day and that leading to a food crisis. Um, there also happened to be a drought this year on top of all of this. And, um, and so families really struggling to, to feed themselves. And, and despite this happening, what the Taliban as the government now has decided to focus on is you know, coming up with different rules and edicts that reflect their ideological vision for the country rather than dealing with the, the crisis at hand and, and trying to help people stay alive. They're busying themselves with, you know, coming up with rules. I just read one five minutes ago about um, uh, restricting women's access to parks. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, before that, it was not allowing women to travel more than, 40 miles without, unless they're accompanied by a male chaperone and, and, and just, you know, all these rules as if they have no idea what's actually going on in the country. So there's these twin crises of the, 
humanitarian economic situation and then the human rights crisis as well. And they're very, very interlinked and they are just getting worse day by day. Now, there are those, of course, who we weren't able to evacuate in August of last year. And for some, that has meant basically a, a year of hiding in, in safe houses in Afghanistan. There were those who, um, you know, are in some state of limbo in, in Pakistan. So what can we say at this point about those who, who are, are in that position? Yeah, I know this uh, problem very well because my own colleagues are in this situation. The majority of, of my colleagues who had worked on Canadian government-funded projects in Afghanistan promoting women's rights and girls' education have been left behind. And so you know, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with the challenges that they're facing. Most of them are trapped in Afghanistan where they're at very, very high risk of retaliation from the Taliban for the work that they, they did. Uh, and others who have managed to get to Pakistan um, continue to live in, in, in fear there, not as much as in Afghanistan, but they, they feel like they're not at a safe enough distance. Um, but they also can't work. They can't enroll their children in school. Um, when their visas run out, they're not even allowed to get credit for their phones. So they're, they're kind of cut off from communication and you know running out of money as they wait for an answer. So there's thousands of people in this situation, and uh, in that chaos of August last year, um, you know, we, we evacuated some. Um, there wasn't a real, um, very consistent application of the criteria for the program. So I think there were people who slipped in that the, the program to uh, evacuate Afghans who had worked for Canada um, didn't quite intend to support, and then others who who were left behind, the, the spots were taken from them. And that's why we've been advocating for an extension of that program and addition of, of more spots so that the people we did leave behind will still have a chance to, to come down the road. Right. So on this file specifically, then, there are concrete steps the government can still take that, that could make a meaningful difference at this point. Absolutely. And, you know, this is really our whole policy towards Afghanistan. I mean, Canada is not doing development in Afghanistan. It doesn't want to work with the government and power there. Um uh, and which is you know understandable, but there's there's still ways to to work around the government and try to support people. But um, it, Afghanistan is no longer a priority in terms of our foreign policy on that front and in development programming. And so, really, what we are doing for Afghanistan is this evacuation and resettlement program. So that constitutes you know essentially Canada's policy towards Afghanistan. So we have to get it right. We have to do it well, and and we haven't quite got there yet. And I do recognize that. The special immigration measures that were introduced for Afghanistan, that was a new program. It's only just a year old. It was announced last July. And new programs can be messy. They can take some time to sort of settle into protocols and processes and become efficient. Uh, so don't close the program down after only a year. Make sure that it works as it was intended, that it helps the people it was intended to help, and let it go at least another year and get more people to safety. And these are not people that... Um, you know, or it's just nice if we help them, it's, it's charitable. These are people that we have some responsibility towards because of the reason that they're at risk, which is their connection to Canada and the work they did on behalf of the Canadian government. And that is different from people at risk for other reasons. Of course, I, I recognize that basically every Afghan is at some kind of risk living in Afghanistan today under the Taliban regime, and everyone is justified in wanting to leave the country. So we have to make very hard choices about how how to select who we help. And to me, it's obvious 
that the first people we should help are those who are in danger because of their connection to us and the work they did on on our behalf. That just seems self-evident to me. Yeah, and I think you alluded to, you know, part of the reason why not just Canada and other countries have sort of thrown up their hands, you know, the idea that, okay, well, the Taliban's in power, that's not going to change. They're objectively terrible. We don't want to be dealing with them or legitimizing them. So it just feels like, Okay, well, we're, we're stuck in this situation where they're in charge. That's not going to change. We don't want to deal with them. That's not going to change. So, so that's that. But it, it shouldn't be or it doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't have to be. And nothing shows this better than our collective reaction to the situation in Ukraine, which is very, very similar. So, you know, in both cases, you have countries where you have a democratically elected government in power that, you know, is then attacked by fascist forces mm-hmm. and that's against the will of of the people and they try to use violence to overthrow the government. Um, you know, the, the, that's what's un- underway now in Ukraine. That's what happened in Afghanistan. These are both fundamentally fights about freedom and democracy and human rights and these values that we like to claim are, you know, Western values or, or the basis of our own societies. And somehow we could make that link with Ukraine and, and, and see this, obviously, but we haven't been able to do it with Afghanistan as, as much. And I'm you know, not arguing that people need to swap one cause for another, that they right. should choose Afghanistan to throw their heart into, to, to feel solidarity towards rather than in Ukraine, but rather to see this as the same fight, that, that these two things are really linked and we all have enough room in our hearts to care about both. Um, and and I, I think we see that, you know, from from the reaction of our governments, which has been a lot more forceful and bold in responding to Ukraine, um, but also to some extent just among among the public. Um, I almost felt like internationalism was dead in a way until the Ukraine invasion happened and showed that our hearts still beat for these things. You know, we still care about these values. We're still capable of coming, you know, uniting around them collectively and and. It's, you know, we're not so bashful anymore about using words like freedom and so on. So uh, the question is just why why did this happen for Ukraine only and not for Afghanistan, too? So if the status quo continues to prevail, what what's your fear that, you know, August of next year is going to look like in Afghanistan? How, how much worse can things get? Um, it's hard to imagine that it will get worse, but it will. It will just because it looks so bad now. It's you know, to look a few steps ahead and, and see where things are going um, is a is a hard thing to accept. But it, it will get worse before it gets better. I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced the Taliban are in power for the foreseeable future, um, not least of which is because of the international community's acceptance of, of the situation. I think that the Taliban were actually emboldened by the respect they were shown by the United States and its allied countries, the countries that were part of NATO that were once fighting the Taliban, um, just being very acquiescent, um, legitimating them through the so-called peace process uh, prior to the, the takeover and giving them the confidence to think, hey, actually, you know, we, we, we can have power here. We're basically being handed that power. So we, we have a responsibility here. And, and I think um, as long as that the you know, unofficial policy and response towards the Taliban, they will stay in power for some time. But on the other hand, they are demonstrating that they're very incapable of governing effectively. Um, you know, you have people now running government ministries and departments who are literally illiterate. 
Uh, so they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know anything about fiscal policy. Um, they just passed their first budget a couple of months ago. It was a total disaster. So the, I think a collapse is coming, um, that they will sort of implode on themselves. But it won't happen as fast as we might like it, and there'll be a lot of suffering in the meantime um, before they you know, do, do fall over the edge of governing. We'll leave it uh, on that note. Uh, Lauren, much more. Uh, Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan at CW4, the number four, CW4WAfghan.ca. Really appreciate the insight. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Dr. Lauren Oates, Executive Director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, and concerned about the situation a year after uh, that chaotic month last year that saw the Taliban uh, reassert itself and take over power once again in Afghanistan. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.